afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst here at Cato and I edit a website called humanprogress.org. This year marks uh, 100 years since the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, a cataclysmic event that unleashed massive suffering upon humanity throughout the world. Here at the Cato Institute, we have attempted to do our bit in commemorating the tens of millions of victims of communism. We have put together forums devoted to intellectuals' affinity for authoritarian leadership, the massive growth in the size and the scope of the state, and also a forum on terror and propaganda uh, as a means of population control. Today, our series comes to an end with a policy forum devoted to the lasting legacy of Marxism um, or Marxist thought on public discourse and intellectual environment in the West. Throughout much of the Western world, free speech is under assault. Uh, from the Muhammad cartoon controversy in, in Denmark to student protests against speakers with unorthodox views on American campuses, journalists, academics, and public figures must moderate their views or find themselves being prevented from speaking out. Yet freedom of speech is central to the emergence and continued survival of a liberal society. So how did we come to this? And to what extent did the spread of Marxist ideas um, facilitated by the communist regimes during the Cold War and by postmodern scholarship affect the world in which we live in today? To help us answer these questions, I'm happy to welcome our panelists. Our first speaker is Fleming Rose. Uh, Fleming Rose is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. He previously served as foreign affairs editor and culture editor at the Danish newspaper Jelens Posten. During his tenure as culture editor, he was principally responsible for the publication of cartoons that initiated the Muhammad cartoon controversy in 2006. Since then, he's been an international advocate for freedom of speech and is the author of several books, including The Tyranny of Silence, which was published by the Cato Institute in 2014. From 1980 to 96, he was the Moscow correspondent for the newspaper Berlinske Tidende, between 96 and 99, he was that newspaper's correspondent here in Washington. In 2015, Rose was awarded the prestigious Publicist Prize from Denmark's National Press Club and received the Honor Award for Defending Free Speech from the Norwegian Frit Ord Foundation. In 2016, he received the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty from the Cato Institute. He lives in Denmark and speaks widely in Europe and elsewhere. Please help me welcome Fleming Rose. Thank you, Marianne. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, for that kind introduction, uh, by training, in fact, I am a Russia expert. So it's a rare privilege for me to be able to combine my interest in free speech with uh, my professional background as uh, uh, a philologist uh, with Russian as my language of expertise. Um, I also want to warn you, this is the second time ever that I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation. 
and I'm sure that it will be visible on the quality, but uh, please bear with me, and I hope it can help you understand better some of my points. Um, the right to freedom of speech and freedom of the press have usually been the exception, not the rule, if you walk through the history of human societies and states. Therefore, it would be wrong to single out the communist regime in the Soviet Union as being unique in its silencing of speech and press. Any ideology, secular or non-secular, that claims to be in possession of the final truth, be it the Catholic Church in the 16th century, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in the 20th century, or the Islamic State in the 21st century, will do whatever it takes to silence dissenting voices in order to keep its monop monopoly on information and ideas. Nevertheless, I'll use my 20 minutes or so to focus on two kinds of arguments used by the communist regime of the Soviet Union to justify undermining freedom of speech and freedom of the press. It's hardly news that the Soviet government wasn't a strong supporter of freedom of expression. But it's worth paying attention to the arguments used by the Bolsheviks because they have become popular as justification for the enforcement of new prohibitions on speech in liberal democracies in the West. I'm not saying that liberal democracies in any way are similar to the Soviet Union. They are not. I'm just saying that we should approach the legacy of the communist regime as a warning sign that we need to pay attention to in order to be aware of the pitfalls of even well-intentioned intentioned measures to regulate speech in our part of the world. The two Soviet arguments against free speech and freedom of the press that I will take a look at are, as you can see, criminalization of so-called hate speech and of fake news. <clears throat> Every liberal democracy except the United States has hate speech laws on the books and the global trend is towards a tougher and broader application of these laws. They are being defended by democratic governments and human rights activists as a necessary tool to, to protect minorities against hateful speech. However, few people know that the international legal basis for these laws were promoted by Stalin's Soviet Union and its allies in the aftermath of World War II. The basis for hate speech laws is Article 20, Paragraph 2 in the UN Covenant on Political and Civil Rights adopted in 1965 and becoming effective in 1976, and to a lesser degree, Article 4 in the Convention to Eliminate Racism, which I won't deal with here. The Soviet Union and its allies defeated the Western countries in the battle for the wording 
of Article 20, Paragraph 2, and the repercussions of that defeat can still be felt in the West. From 1974 through 1953, anti-hate provisions were added to the draft covenant on civil and political rights, then deleted upon motion by the United States, then added again, then deleted, and finally added for good. The drafting history echoes and shows the, divine, the dividing line drawn between primarily Western and communist states and their allies. The fundamental disagreement was about how far protection of speech should go. Should the key limitation on speech be incitement to violence, or should the signatories to the convention be obliged to criminalize verbal insults under the formula incitement to hatred as well? Should a clear distinction be drawn between words and deeds, or should insulting and offensive words be treated as if they were violent actions and therefore outside constitutional protection? The first draft was limited to the prohibition, and I quote, as you can see, of any advocacy of national, racial, or religious hostility that constitutes an incitement to violence. The draft was supported by the US, the UK, and the Western democracies. This conceptual approach to free speech and its limits was similar to the US Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment in recent decades. The final wording of the article, however, reads, and I quote, any advocacy of national, racial, or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, or violence shall be prohibited by law. There's a profound conceptual and philosophical difference between these two uh, proposals. The vote on the wording of Article 20, Paragraph 2, took place in the Third Committee of the General Assembly in 1953. 50 countries voted in favor, 18 voted against, and 15 abstained. The countries that voted against included almost all Western democracies. Um, so, uh, uh, and that, that is uh, uh, basically the communist states. And uh, let me see. Ah, yeah. Okay. I switch those two slides, but those are the ones who voted uh, in favor of the article. And those who voted against, you can see here, among them the Nordic countries, United States, uh, Canada, the UK, uh, USA, and, uh, and other Western democracies. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who headed the US delegation, warned, warned against the wording, the wording's lack of a clear distinction between words and actions. She called the USSR proposal, the Soviet proposal on incitement to hatred, extremely dangerous, since any criticism of public or religious authorities might all too easily be described as incitement to hatred and consequently prohibited. 
end of quote. Pointing out the difficulty of distinct, distinguishing between hatred and ill feeling and mere dislike, Roosevelt warned against using, and I quote, such vague expressions as national hostility and re religious hostility, since such terms would encourage governments to punish all criticism under the guise of protecting against religious or national hostility. And this is exactly what happened. The paragraph has become a trump card in the hands of any regime that wants to protect itself against criticism on human rights abuses, be it freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of assembly, the free rights embedded in the First Amendment. One of the things distinguishing a democracy from a dictatorship is that the latter treat critical and dissenting words as if they were physical attacks on the government. The hate speech provisions in the covenant, in the covenant on civil and political rights created a legal foundation for governments that want to clamp down on dissenting voices with a reference to the claimed hateful and hurtful content of criticism. In recent years, Article 20, paragraph 2, has been invoked by the Organization of the Islamic Conference, the OIC, and Ekmeleddin Isanoglu, Secretary General of the OIC and a dear friend of President Erdogan in uh, Turkey, in an interview a few years ago, called for criminalization of verbal attacks on religion as a form of hate speech and racism. And here is what uh, Isanoglu said. When freedom of speech is abused in order to demonize and ridicule with the intention of sowing seeds of hatred against a group of people or citizens, that is when, problems, when the problems begin. What we are saying is that incitement to hatred should be permitted as long as, should not be permitted as long as a specific action comprises a crime under Article 20 of the Covenant, uh, of the covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which obliges governments on, at the national level to take measures against incitement to religious hatred. End of quote. I will remind you that in several Muslim-majority countries, criticism of Islam in the form of blasphemy and apostasy are seen as capital offenses triggering the death penalty. The resistance of most Western countries to Article 20 back in the 1940s and 50s is particularly ironic when considering that today it is official policy in these countries that hate speech should be criminalized. The European states that 60 years ago found hate speech laws dangerous and arbitrary have today become active proponents of such laws, though their intentions may be more noble than the intentions of the Soviet Union and other non-democratic states that they opposed during the Cold War. As my Danish colleague uh, and sometimes co-author Jacob Machangama concludes in a study about the origins of European hate speech laws, and I quote Jacob, it is a sad reflection on Europe that increasing emphasis on criminalizing words that hurt or offend is the brainchild 
of the very totalitarian states with which the Western European states were locked in an ideological battle during the Cold War. The second point I want to make is related to the Soviet government's introduction of censorship. Although the key institution in charge of censorship in the Soviet Union, Glav Lit, was established in 1922, Vladimir Lenin and his comrades imposed censorship on their second day in power, that is on October 27, 1917. And they justified the abolition of a free press with the need to counter fake news. It was a controversial decision and it caused a heated debate among the parties on the left and inside the Bolshevik party. The Russian socialists had for years been fighting terrorist censorship and now they were using the same weapon against their opponents. In the decree on the press, the Bolsheviks defended censorship with a reference to the fact that the majority of the press was owned by the wealthy classes and their wealth allowed them, and I quote, to poison people's mind, end of quote. And among the three justifications for shutting down newspapers and other outlets, Lenin listed, and I quote, sowing confusion through slanderous distortion of facts. Those are the three justifications, and it's the last one that I will go into detail uh, here. Distortion of facts is today's fake news. It has become popular to call for the criminalization or dissemination of fake news. Germany, a de democratic country in Europe, recently passed legislation to that effect, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if more democracies are to follow. In non-democratic societies, bans on disseminating false information has always been a powerful instrument to persecute religious and ethnic minorities and to silence political dissent. And I think the Soviet experience should provide cause for pause among those who believe that criminalization is the best way to fight fake news. The Soviet government was consistent in using the fake news label as a pretext for imposing censorship and sending critics of the regime to labor camps. The Soviet penal code had two paragraphs intended to fight anti-Soviet agitation and propaganda, and that is in the language of uh, the Soviet government, fake news. And these paragraphs were widely used against dissidents. Here is the first one. Um, I have underlined the uh, relevant um, words. They criminalize the systematic dissemination by word of mouth of deliberate fabrications which defame the Soviet political and social system or the manufacturing of dissemination in written, printed, or other form of works of, of the same content. Um, the other article was uh, Article 70 uh, of the Soviet uh, Criminal Code. It was passed a few years uh, 
earlier um, and with a more severe penalty uh, and, and uh, with a wider definition. But still, it was about slanderous fabric fabrications which defamed the Soviet political uh, and social system. Um, the Soviet Union and other oppressive and non-democratic governments insisted that by criminalizing the dissemination of distorted facts, false information, and fake news, they protected the political order and society against forces trying to sow chaos and discontent. In this context, it's, stri it's striking how politicians in democracies are using the same kind of arguments. I was struck by the way Germany's Minister of Justice, Heiko Maas, from the CDU, the government party, earlier this year argued for the criminalization of fake news on social media. And Maas said, uh, defamation and malicious gossip are not covered under freedom of speech. Justice authorities must prosecute that even on the internet. Anyone who tries to manipulate the political discussion with lies needs to be aware of the consequences. To me, it sounds very similar to the way the Soviet government uh, argued for putting uh, dissidents in jail. Um, I could also mention uh, Giovanni Petru Zeller, who is the antitrust chief of uh, the Italian government. Um, and in a new book, uh, he defends the need for the European Union to set up a network of government-appointed bodies to remove fake news. It violates, it violates Europeans' right to be pluralistically informed, he says, and therefore the government needs to take action. And Petrotella doesn't even hide that he wants to use the government to fight his political opponents. He says, and I quote, post-truth in politics is one of the drivers of populism and it is one of the threats to our democracy, end of quote. Soviet censors would have applauded this kind of argumentation. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Fleming. Christina Hoff-Summers is our second speaker. Uh, she's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where she studies uh, the politics of gender and feminism, as well as free expression, due process, and the preservation of liberty in the academy. Before joining AEI, Summers was uh, a philosophy professor at Clark University. She's best known for her defense of classical liberal feminism and her critique of gender feminism. Her books include Freedom Feminism, Its Surprising History and Why It Matters Today, One Nation Under Therapy, The War Against Boys, Who Stole Feminism, and Vice and Virtue in Everyday Life. Her writings have appeared in publications such as The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Uh, in addition to that, she's a frequent uh, radio uh, and um, a television guest, and she hosts a popular video blog, uh, The Factual Feminist. Dr. Summers, 
um, has a PhD in philosophy from Brandeis University and a BA from New York University. Please help me welcome Christina Hosamos. Good afternoon, and thank you to the Cato Institute for providing us with this safe space to debate freedom of expression and antics on the college campus nearly every day, it seems. Another, there's another mystifying story about campus intolerance, sometimes even violence. Schools from Berkeley, Middlebury, Evergreen State, Reed College, Cal State LA, and the, recently a speaker from the ACLU was talking about freedom of speech at William & Mary College and was shut down by protesters. <laughs> um, now, some defenders of this new intolerance will claim that they're really trying to make the campus a kinder and more inclusive place to empower silenced voices and um, sometimes give arguments that to me are reminiscent of those uh, from the 1917 decree <laughs> about censorship of the press. We want to suppress those voices that poison the minds of other people. Um, but I don't see this uh, as leading to a kinder, more inclusive campus. In fact, kindness is not the first word that comes to mind. The recent assault on free speech and the new fixation on things like microaggressions and safe spaces, cultural appropriation, what's behind it? Now, some have claimed it's really kind of spoiled kids, over-trophied self-esteemers. They come to college and go nuts, <laughs> helicopter parenting. Um, others blame risk-averse college administrators and overactive uh, officials, campus administrators, there is merit to those explanations, but I don't think it explains the ferocity of the, the intolerance we're seeing on campus. And I think when future historians look back and try to understand what the hell happened to American campuses in the you know, second part of, the, of the, the second decade of the 21st century, they are going to find that the real culprit turned out to be a theory, and it's called in intersectionality. Now, uh, this new intolerance is based on this awkwardly named but self-confident theory uh, developed by activist scholars over the course of about 30 years, although it's, as you'll see, it, it's not entirely original. Um, this specific theory uh, developed in the 70s and 80s. And the idea is that uh, pathologies like racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, these aren't separate systems. They connect, they intersect, they create complex arrangements of advantages and burdens. So for example, a white woman would be penalized by gender, but privileged by race. An African-American man suffer from race, but garner advantage from gender. But a, say a Latino woman, Af an African-American woman, an Asian woman, they would be in double jeopardy, disadvantaged by both ethnicity and gender. Now, the term intersectionality was coined in a 1989 paper by a law professor, Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw, 
And what she, she actually was making an interesting point. Uh, she tried to show the legal predicament of black women um, that just wasn't captured in the discourse on race and gender. Black women were sort of left behind. You could go to court and sue for sexism or you could sue for racism, but in this case, there was a general, I think it was General Motors, wasn't guilty of, they hired blacks, they just didn't hire, um, uh, they hired blacks to, to work on the, you know, they were working in the factory, they had women working um, as, in the, as, as, as secretaries, um, so how could, you know, we're not, we hire women, we hire, but they didn't have any black women, and the black women tried to sue, and the court just couldn't find a category, because it wasn't, the company wasn't racist, they had, you know what, anyway, she, uh, she said in this paper, we have to pay attention to the intersections of racism and sexism, thus the term intersectionality. Now initially, the primary focus was on, on black women, but then the number of people at these intersections began to multiply. Um, and there's, in fact, a graphic from a popular women's studies textbook that now shows 14 or 15 marginalized groups. So you get very complicated taxonomies of oppression and domination. Um, so it's, you know, as I said, racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, ageism, I like that one. Um, and it, it keeps going. I was at a, a feminist conference years ago, and uh, we were already trying to be intersectional. There'd been a lot of fights in the group, and so we were told to break down. The first day, we were told to break down into small groups based on our grievances and healing needs. <laughs> and there were groups for, you know, black women, Asian women, Jewish women, fat women, gay women. None of the groups proved stable. People started quarreling, and so there was then a group of, uh, you know, like black lesbian group and a Jew. The Jewish women started to fight someone. Some of them wanted to celebrate their religion. Others wanted to overcome it. They couldn't get along. They did. It was this continuous process of grief, of mitosis. It's just more and more, smaller and smaller groups. I, I eventually ended up bonding with a group of lesbian separatists. <laughs> the, I wasn't a smoker, but I needed a cigarette, and they smoked <laughs> in their group. <laughs> Actually, we got along pretty well, but anyway. Um, if it, 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 now, if intersectionality were merely a recommendation to social scientists and activists to be more inclusive, um, consider the impact of laws and policies from a diversity of perspectives, that would be fine. But it's much more than that. Uh, Patricia Hill Collins, for example, she's a professor at the University of Maryland, former president of the American Sociological Association, She's one of the chief architects of intersectionality theory. Now, she is a, a, a critical theorist, and this is a term that comes to us through the, I guess, the neo-Marxists in the Frankfurt School. Um, one of the uh, members of this school, uh, Max Horkheimer, described a critical theory. He said, a theory is critical insofar as it seeks to liberate human beings from circumstances that enslave them. And so this involves unmasking, ideologies, but for all of the, all the critical theorists I know of, it means unmasking the hidden ideologies of the capitalist bourgeois and, um, and uh, you know, raising the consciousness of those who are, are its victims. 
uh, the victims of the capitalist bourgeoisie, and it aims to enlighten and foment radical change. So uh, it, it, Collins and other intersectional uh, feminists have a lot of texts where they've worked out a very elaborate theories involving what they, well, in this case, Patricia Collins calls the matrix of domination, and others call it the matrix of oppression. And students in popular textbooks, uh, day one, uh, they learn that beneath this veneer of freedom and opportunity in the, you know, the United States is a rigid system of privilege and dom domination. Um, so, so, and, and of oppression and privilege, unearned privilege, typically. And um, now, as they say in their text, most college students don't automatically see that. Uh, and the text explains that's because the true nature of your society has been hidden from you. And in, in this one textbook, Race, Class, Gender, she, uh, Collins and the co-authors say, Dominant forms of knowledge have been constructed largely from the experience of the powerful. But students are assured that marginalized identities still have resources. Because it turns out, on this theory, and this, isn't, this is in critical theory, but it's, it, may, it comes out of critical race theory, and then I think she picked it up and turned it into critical, uh, in, into intersectional feminism. Disadvantaged groups have access to deeper, more liberating knowledge. Uh, and here, she and others are borrowing from Foucault this idea of, of subjugated knowledge. To find it and to get find their voice and to enlighten others about the true nature of reality, they do require a safe space. She uses that term, uh, uh, Patricia Collins. I say, and then you, know, you want to be free of microaggressive put-downs, little daily put-downs that remind you of your lowly position if you happen to be a person of color or um, someone on the uh, LBGQT spectrum. You'll be reminded of your, uh, your disadvantage daily and put-down. So you, you want to protect people from that. Uh, and... Um, and you want people, this is also important, to speak about their lived experience. According to this theory, lived experience, uh, narratives, your personal story, it's a better guide to truth than uh, self-serving Western and masculine styles of logic and reasoning. Now, unlike uh, one thing I'll say about this, I consider myself a classical equity feminist, and that is a school of feminism that developed out of the European Enlightenment and the ideals and the, of the American Declaration of Independence and US Constitution. Uh, this theory, intersectional, intersectionality, comes straight out of Marxism via the Frankfurt School, via French philosophers, and maybe a little of the self-esteem movement. Um, it does not have any special allegiance to American ideals like free expression, due process, the right of an individual to pursue happiness. In fact, they view the Western democratic tradition with skepticism, sometimes scorn, and it's often dismissed as a false narrative that silence, silences the oppressed and protects the privileges of the dominant class. One of the leading uh, figures in this movement is Bell Hooks, perhaps the best known, and she says, quote, she says this all the time, but uh, 
here's a typical quote. Uh, as long as the United States is an imperialist, capitalist, patriarchal society, no large female majority can enter the existing ranks of the powerful. And in, in, I remember a, a one a text, uh, like Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman put on the Supreme Court. And as an equity feminist, for me, that was progress. We want to see more women uh, you know, ascending to positions of, of power. But according to Hooks, we are deluded. Women like O'Connor, she says, will exercise power alongside men, even as they continue to support white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. Now, her assessment of the United States, and that a similar one of Patricia Collins and a growing number of professors, um, it's foundational to intersectional theory. And this theory is now official doctrine in gender studies, probably ethnic studies, and turning up in more and more college texts and classrooms. Now, I'll paraphrase uh, something Jeremy Bentham once said uh, about a, a theory. He said, the propositions of this theory fall into three categories, those that are incoherent, those that are false, and those that are both. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, hard, it's hard to criticize. In a way, it's a conspiracy theory, uh, a kind of paranoid take on the world, um, even this idea of lived experience. So we, we want the, the, a foundation for knowledge. And if you see one of these textbooks, they're just full of stories and narratives of people of, with different, from different uh, groups, marginalized groups, uh, and their complaints and about mainstream American society. And so you hear that you want to encounter their lived experience. That's the best guide, we're told, instead of logic and reason. And if you're, it's very frustrating, I think, for some people on campus because you try to argue with them and, and you ask for evidence or show inconsistencies, they, they will um, tell you, to, depending on who you are, because it all depends on your identity, you see. The quality of your argument isn't its cogency, consistent, it's your identity. That's what confers legitimacy. But this is what I find incoherent. Not all people of a particular marginalized group, not all black women, not all gay women, not all you know, Hispanic women, they don't all think the same way. They don't agree on everything. Um, so who gets to count as the storyteller from the marginalized groups? Well, the Chronicle of Higher Education recently did a major article on intersectionality. It reported how it's just spreading, and there's been this just exponential growth articles, intersectional analyses. Uh, but it reports the theory is already in crisis because no one knows what it is. <laughs> no one can define it. And they're all fighting with one another. The intersectional crowd is very fractious, like that conference uh, in 1992, that's still happening. Um, so that's an ex example of the just, it's just incoherent. It seems to be, you know, as I said, sort of, it's not falsifiable. Uh, but also, it just seems to me, it's the fundamental assumption is false. Um, the United States has many flaws. Well, so bell hooks. It's an imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. No, it's not. Well, it is capitalist. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, but this idea of white supremacy, you know, it's overstated and reality challenged. I mean, the United States has many flaws. No one will dispute that. But it's also one of the most successful, diverse, and tolerant open societies the world has ever seen. And um, they, you know, they're teaching students that it's a matrix of oppression when, in fact, it's 
more of a matrix of, of opportunity and freedom and happiness. Not perfect, but very, very good. Now, um, I do believe that this theory is driving the fanaticism on campus, and I'll tell you why. For one reason, because it has this theory of interlocking oppressions, all the radicals in campus from every group get together, because now you have to fight all injustices at once. And um, so since they're all connected, you can't just fight one oppression. They're all they're mutually reinforcing and connected, interlocking, whatever that means. They understand it, and they get together. So that's given them more of a voice on campus. Um, but if you're committed to this theory, why would you worry about niceties of being you know, polite or civil, uh, free expression, free expression for, for oppressors, free expressions for people you regard as, as fascists? You're on an urgent mission to dismantle a relentless and lethal system of oppression. And not only that, it's very frustrating because most people don't even know it's there. And so you're not going to be, you know, you, if someone, like when I go to college campuses, not always, but often, even though I'm an equity feminist and I'm defending a lot of liberal principles, I'm protested. People run out of the room. At Oberlin, they had a safe room where um, I think 30 women and a therapy dog fled <laughs> to a safe room. I feel bad about that dog. And, you know, they, because you're there reinforcing the dominant narrative. So, again, they have... It's kind of the same mindset that we, we saw in, among Bolsheviks, um, at least in terms of censorship. They don't, uh, they don't put, it, put you in prison. They don't have the power to do that. I'm glad they don't, because I think they might put, put me in prison. And um, many other people uh, who go to campus. And you can be even just a, it doesn't matter. They, they can find a reason to protest. The most extreme case I heard was at Reed College, it was one of their own professors. She was a, a, a lesbian. She was teaching Sappho. They protested that somehow this class was insufficiently intersectional, and they shut it down. Anyway, if you are so, but from their point of view, um, what they want to do is, you know, create safe space for themselves so they can, you know. Um, have this access to this, this the, the knowledge, tell their stories, and, and heaven forbid you're a, some white cisgendered guy on campus and you try to dispute them by using logic and reason, you will be told to check your privilege, stop mansplaining, and shut the F up. <laughs> uh, and some campuses now have, they're so worried about this, they're so worried about uh, microaggressions, denigrating uh, minor, you know, marginalized people, and reinforcing the narrative of oppression. They're so worried about that that, uh, for example, at Santa Cruz, they now have, well, a professor of psychology came up with a microaggression app. And so if you're anywhere on school and you overhear anything that might be perceived as a slight, you know, you can uh, right away report it. And, to, you know, Santa Cruz, uh, when I was growing up, it was, you know, the, this place for, you know, liberation and stoners, <laughs> but I didn't associate it with a surveillance system, you know, and it's, it's quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, one of my favorite writers, Andrew Sullivan, has compared uh, intersectionality to a puritanical sect. He said, it has blasphemy laws, 
which is it's obsessed with upholding. And sinners, he says, sinners are categorized in various ascending categories of demographic damnation, like something out of Dante. And he makes a very good point. Uh, he said, the only thing it lacks, of course, is salvation. Uh, life is simply an interlocking drama of oppression and power and resistance ending only in death. So silencing speech, uh, forbidding debate, uh, these aren't just unfortunate byproducts of intersectionality. They're sort of the goal. Um, so when uh, the writer Heather McDonald was giving a talk uh, defending the, the police, uh, I guess her talk was called Blue Lives Matter. That was provocative. But she was shut down by a mob at Claremont McKenna College. Well, after she was shut down, the president of the neighboring Pomona College sent out an email defending free speech. 25 students shot back a response. Quote, Heather McDonald is a fascist, a white supremacist, ignorant of interlocking systems of domination that produce the lethal conditions under which oppressed people are forced to live. Students. So they're learning the lesson. Now, how could students believe this? Why is it that, wouldn't they be skeptical? You're at Santa Cruz or Pomona College or, and your life isn't exactly a matrix of oppression. And yet, the society you live in, not that it doesn't have all sorts of troubles and things can't be a lot better, but this is a very strange philosophy for any student to accept. I don't, I don't say that most kids would get carried away with it. Most kids are exposed to this now. I don't think you could get through uh, any major university without, unless, know, maybe if you avoid all humanities courses. Um, but, uh, if you take a humanities course, you're likely to encounter this. And heaven forbid you take you know, any ethnic studies, peace studies, gender studies. Um, yet students don't seem to flinch uh, when they hear these intersectional scholars like bell hooks describe the United States as an imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist society. They take it in their stride. Now, I suspect that, um, that the reason they do this is maybe they're already hearing it in high school. I don't know for sure. I don't even know how to find out, but I think we should. I think there, you know, we should look to see if this is going on in the high school. And maybe I'm just being paranoid. I hear things that worry me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it wouldn't be uh, such a bad thing to do. I, I think both for college and um, uh, high school, there could be some kind of uh, content analysis of textbooks just to see what kids are learning, because it could be a, uh, a, a nasty surprise, um, and especially if you look at the kind of papers that are presented at, at, you know, in, in, in uh, professional conferences where teachers gather. And this, this way of thinking has made serious inroads into our educational system. And um, I think that uh, it can be challenged. Right now, it's, it, it's only challenged pretty much uh, on the right. It's probably going to have to be liberals that do it because, you know, uh, there aren't that many conservatives, certainly in the universities. Um, now, I will say uh, the tendency to overstate the faults of the United States or the whole Western tradition and to understate the, fault, uh, <coughs> the failings of other societies, <coughs> this is going on. Um, 
<clears throat> and the question is, why do the scholars do it? I understand the kids. Maybe they were just taught this. So this is, this is reality. This is history um, as they understand it. Why do so many scholars, write, why do they write these books? Why do they believe these theories? I've been trying to figure that out for 30 years. Um, and recently, and I'm going to end just with a few suggestions. <laughs> um, Pas uh, there's a, a Pascal Bruckner uh, in a book called The Tyranny of Guilt has a very interesting theory about uh, self-contempt. He said contempt for, for the West, for the US, uh, <clears throat> he said uh, it's, very, it's a very Western thing. It's a part of, it's built into the sort of Judeo-Christian tradition, the Western tradition of self, you know, it's kind of self-reflection, self-criticism. So there, but there's a group of people who's just going to take it to the to an extreme. Uh, so he says nothing is more Western than what, nothing is more Western than hatred of the West, the passion of cursing and lacerating ourselves. So I think we have to figure out more about that. He has lots of ideas. Um, he said something though that I thought was so powerful. Um, he said, "Of course we have monsters in our past." Um, Europe has given birth to terrible monsters, but at the same time, he said, it's given birth to theories that make it possible to understand and destroy those monsters. He said, and then he, this is the metaphor, he says, Western tradition, it's like a jailer. He throws you into prison, but then he slips you the keys to your cell. Now, I'm just worried that our students aren't learning about the key. And you're just thinking, oh, we're just one system among others. That's another thing in the textbooks. They're so afraid of teaching American history or civics and giving students the idea that they're part of a, um, this American uh, civic religion, if you will. It's something very special. Uh, the, the historian Paul Johnson, one of the rare historians I know, he thinks very well of America. He calls it uh, the greatest of all human adventures. You, you want, I think students have a right to know that they're part of that adventure, to know what it is, and to know about the key. Um, but I've, I'm also reading Roger Scruton. And uh, how, how much have I gone? Oh, OK. I just have to tell you this. Before I even tell you about Roger Scruton, I just want to tell you something I read in a fantastic book. Uh, by uh, Sylvia Nasser. It's called The Grand Pursuit. It's the history of economic genius. And she has chapters on, you know, well, the, the great economists, including Marx. Um, but she describes something I just can't forget. Uh, Marx was uh, living in London at the time that they built the Crystal Palace, which was a sort of World's Fair in 1851. And it was just, just acres and acres of, you know, of things from all over the world, uh, musical instruments, mechanical toys, telescopes, huge you know, hydraulic jacks, uh, goods. And it was a celebration of industrialization. Uh, but it was also uh, a tribute to bourgeois middle-class life. There was lots of furniture and just everything, everything from all over the world, but most of it from, from Great Britain. Um, Karl Marx was living nearby. He, did, he was not interested in, he, in fact, he was horrified by the Crystal Palace. Um, it actually, 
he, he would later write about it um, as an example of the uh, 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 fetishism, commodity fetishism, and the imminent collapse of the bourgeois order. And, and I thought, too, of uh, a lot of the people from the Frankfurt School had to flee Germany, and they came to the United States. Uh, and some of them ended up in California. And you, you would think that California, you know, in the late 40s and 50s, you know, would look pretty good after you've come from war-torn, you know, you know, Europe, Nazis, and, you know, <laughs> you're in California. Adorno is taken to Disneyland, this philosopher, you know, and he's, you know, he was horrified. And he was horrified by American jazz. Um, and he, you know, eventually found his way back to Europe. But uh, I'm, I'm struck by this attitude. And um, this will bring me to Roger Scruton, because it, he has a book called Fools, Fraudens, Firebrands. And he tries to understand, why are they like this? And I think what he says about what you know Marx and uh, what I might say about um, some of these intersectional scholars is that there's, he says they, they seem to have a pathological hatred for the imperfect and the normal. A pathological hatred for the, perf for the imperfect and the normal. Um, and, and, and theirs is a cry against the actual on behalf of the unknowable. And, and I think those are just two very rich ideas, but these ideas, the people, people that are still celebrating these ideas or in our universities. It's hard to know if our institutions of higher learning will find their way back to academic freedom, open inquiry, mutual understanding. But as long as this theory goes unchallenged, campus fanaticism will intensify. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Christina, um, and thank you once again, uh, Fleming. Uh, both very interesting um, conversations, uh, both very interesting presentations, and uh, in fact, so much so that I would like to ask the first question. Um, I, I don't know if uh, uh, you guys will have an answer, but obviously, I can. I can. We can just leave it uh, out there. Um, I'm interested in the in how Marxism transmogrified into post-Marxism. One of the theories which I, which I recently heard was uh, that by the 1960s, the original conception of Marxism, proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, capitalist versus the workers, was so discredited by the crimes of the Soviet Union, by all the, all the news uh, and all the uh, eyewitness accounts of Stalin's Russia, that French intellectuals in the 60s and the 70s have um, uh, tried to adapt Marxism for modernity by basically, um, well, broadening it to include uh, identity, uh, but, but changing in, in, in such a way. Um, I wonder if either of you has come across that particular way of thinking. not only the, the Frankfurt School, but the French philosophers. And uh, like Jean-Paul Sartre, he, he, well, the Marxists didn't like him, uh, and he didn't really like the Marxists, but he was, you know, a Soviet apologist all the way, even a Maoist apologist, um, to the end. 
And how, how could this, the, the great philosopher of freedom perversely embraces the most, uh, you know, atrocious, uh, repressive systems. How could that be? And I think it got, it's something that, uh, again, with Roger Scruton about uh, uh, Sartre did have a sort of contempt for the bourgeois. Everything he was, he never lost that. And I think he liked Marxism because it, they didn't like the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie. And so this was an abiding passion. And he he had no. So you, if you have no uh, affection for ordinary. People, that I mean, it's easy to reject liberalism and uh, uh, economic freedom because people are going to abuse that freedom, especially if they don't have the right consciousness. So you want to have a lot of your rules and things. But I think in Sartre's case, it, there was also a, a kind of uh, emotional attachment to always, ha you know, shock the bourgeoisie, hurt the bourgeoisie. He, he this. This uh, was, a, it was his passion. Mm -hmm. So you find it in Sartre. Then next you find it in Foucault, the same kind of, I mean, he, I'm not saying, look, I'd rather be reading Sartre, Foucault, even Marx, than what the kids are reading, because they're not reading, the, 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 these are interesting people and, and some very rich ideas. I don't agree with a lot of them, but uh, what, what's happened now is that they're getting watered down and you know worse, but, the, but those ideas are still there. And another change with the, this was already in the Frankfurt School. Marx was focused on economics primarily. They, they started to look at culture. So there were elaborate theories about how the culture works to uh, reinforce your you know, oppressive state. And, and they were worried too that how do you get the working class? The working class doesn't seem to be going, getting, going along with the program. So they were, they were fixated, and that's that's the problem that has continued to this day, is trying to just get people to see they shouldn't like Disneyland and they shouldn't like what they saw in in the Crystal Palace and these consumer consumers consumerism and all of that. Um, but they keep the the Marxist structure. They still keep the hostility to liberalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's about human beings. I I started. Uh, the Soviet Union and I lived there as a student for one year um, and uh, many of my co-students they were communists um, and as part of the study program we went to Russia to learn the language and you had two categories of uh, I was never a communist uh, I'm sorry to say uh, don't be but, sorry um, uh, I was in high school um, but 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 uh, you, you 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 had two categories of people uh, um, students who, uh, after having visited the Soviet Union, left the Communist Party and changed their views. And then you had those who uh, continued to be in denial, that uh, they just didn't want to see what they experienced uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, talking about France, I think uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, book on the Gulag uh, was a bombshell in the French uh, debate and it also influenced uh, the new French philosophers and you had a schisma. In fact, uh, André Glucksmann and uh, Henri, uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, who were, you know, fond of uh, Sartre and, and Glucksmann was a Maoist himself, after having read Solzhenitsyn's uh, Archipelag uh, Gulag, uh, they, they changed their mind. 
um, and uh, associated themselves more with Camus, uh, who had this debate with uh, uh, Sartre. But I think you said something uh, of profound importance, uh, Christine, and that was about, you know, this pathological hatred uh, of the imperfect. And that is, in fact, also what drove the, the Bolsheviks. They wanted to create a perfect society. And, and, and the, the language was permeated with uh, phrases like, you know, let's clean up the whole place. Uh, let's get rid of these uh, dirty people. And you, in fact, you, you, uh, you, they, they had a concept uh, called Bushri Chilavik, a former human being. Uh, people who didn't who, who belonged to the long to the wrong classes in the Soviet Union. So it was a very sanitary project, in fact, uh, uh, like Nazism. And in that sense, I think there are similarities that you wanted to uh, you know have a clean society, and that's why it's important sometimes to uh, be able to appreciate uh, you know dirty things. <laughs> And uh, that not everything has to be perfect and uh, clean and, and, and human beings. And in fact, I some years ago, I interviewed Mario Vargas uh, Losa and I asked him, the Nobel Prize winner of uh, literature, who's a good friend of Cato, um, why so many writers uh, become infatuated with totalitarian ideologies or artists. And he said, you know, because they... They, 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 they are not fond of the mediocrity uh, uh, of democracy because democracy is, in effect, about the mediocre. It's about compromises and uh, complicated processes. An artist creates this perfect uh, world where no one can interfere and uh, ask, you know, why are you not doing this? Or why are you doing this? And maybe you should do this and so on and so forth. Um, for a great defender of the proletariat, Lenin never thought much about the, the working class, which is why he always thought that the communist movement revolution would have to be led by a vanguard. Um, what, what role, if any, does the working class woman have to play in the, in the intersectional movement? Well, they're not involved. This is in the universities. And it's uh, the more elite the university, the more likely you have a, a very, you know, strong uh, intersectional elite. Uh, so it's not a working class movement. It's uh, strictly, the more privileged you are, the more likely you'll know that you have to learn a very arcane language. Um, and you also have to have a capacity, but you just said, not, of not to see what's in front of your eyes, not to see what you experience. So you're at Oberlin College and you're oppressed. How can you, how can that, how does that work? And, uh, but we see it, you can go back and see it, um, as I said, that there were, like with Marx, he was, um, you know, claiming that, that all of Europe was uh, in a downward spiral, we're going to see the collapse of the bourgeois order. No, it was already the exact opposite. We were going to see what Deirdre McCloskey calls the, the greatest enrichment ever held by humankind. Uh, the world was about to be enriched. It was going to, you know, raise the standard of living for the, everyone, including the, the poor across the world. And but they don't see it. They can't see it. Even, even they say, but I'm talking about students in universities who are themselves privileged and who are taught to think of themselves as oppressed. Like young women at, at an elite college must be the freest, most 
self-determining, opportunity-rich person on the planet. And yet, very soon, you get to Wellesley or Swarthmore, you will learn you are oppressed. So there's a kind of amazing self, uh, just deception. All right. Well, I'm going to restrain myself from asking more questions, even though I could. And uh, we'll go to the audience, gentlemen in the middle. Thank you. My name is Alexis Sepchenko. And before I ask my question, I would like to quickly. In, in, uh, I, I like yes. So um, basically, the question is what should be done about it? How can we? fight against it. And the example was done by the Mr. Lankov who spoke here in the first event who said that the, he's an expert on North Korea, and he says that in North Korea you see blossoming capitalism, small enterprises are popping up everywhere, illegal, and the Marxist is much stronger in South Korean universities where wealthy, <laughs> rich kids study. Thank you. Uh, what do you do about it? You know, um, I'm very active on Twitter, waste a lot of time there, but all of a sudden coming into my Twitter feed where I was getting these posts from something called Human Progress and wonderful charts and um, uh, little essays about how good everything is and how it's getting better just in terms of you know not to despair and what the free market has done. And it's almost a daily reminder. And of course, I, I thought, finally, I thought, like, who are these guys? What this is good? This what is this? And I, it's, I follow you now, and, and and eagerly wait your, your, your the good news, and then, um, but then I saw it was coming from Cato Institute, and they're using social media, as an alternative means to educate, young people, and uh, so I think we need more than that. I think right now the think tanks have never been more important. This is just alternative source of learning. At my institute, AEI, we have more and more outreach programs, bring students in. I know Cato does that, and uh, and Hoover. Um, we need more, just any, and then college lectures. But typically now, uh, if you're known to be a, a libertarian, a conservative, a moderate feminist, you will not be invited by the school. You, but the students will invite you. So. They have, they're still <laughs> having a very active program. So that's one thing, is just keep, uh, keep uh, sanity alive. Well, thanks for that. That's very kind of um, Yes. Thank you very much. I'm Herman Bauma with the National Association for Objectivity and Science. Um, perhaps this is a little bit unrelated. I'm not sure. but. Uh, I'm interested in the, the concept of hate crimes now that's becoming very popular in the United States. So instead of hate speech, there's, you have hate crimes. And um, I don't understand how we in the United States can even have the concept of a hate crime. I mean, what difference does it make? I mean, if a crime's committed, like there was a story yesterday about a man who vandalized some churches in New Jersey and officials announced recently they're no longer investigating the crimes as uh, biased crimes. Well, what difference does it make? Um, I mean, he vandalized. And I would think, I would hope that uh, it would become common now, soon, in the United States for people to realize that the whole notion of a hate crime is contrary to the First Amendment. I would appreciate your thoughts. 
Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, it is related, I think, to uh, the concept of hate speech that I talked about, and um, I think it's it 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 comes down to a kind of new utopia in the West that uh, we are obsessed with eradicating hate. And we believe that if we can eradicate hate, then the eternal peace will uh, arrive and everything will be uh, great. Uh, I mean, I don't think that hate uh, is a very constructive emotion. Uh, sometimes it may be, but uh, often is, it is not. But 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 uh, sometimes it's a very legitimate uh, and okay emotion that uh, that makes sense. Um, but but uh, there is this obsession, uh, and in Europe, it's uh, I mean, all these hate speech laws in Europe and laws against uh, Holocaust denial that, by the way, all were passed after the end of the Berlin Wall. They they are. They are founded in, in this idea that if we can eradicate hate, criminalize hate, get rid of hate, then we will uh, get um, the eternal peace and a more perfect society. And I recently found out that if, in, if, you, if, you, if you look at the brain, it turns out that the, the emotion of love and hate are very close uh, in the brain. So if you, if, you, if you get rid of hate, you will also get rid of love. <laughs> Uh, as emotion founded in uh, in the brain, I think we should be more relaxed about uh, this approach to uh, to hate as as some kind of uh, utopian uh, project, and that we have to get rid of it at almost any price. And, 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 and by the way, the, there is no clear definition of hate. Uh, uh, when I looked into these questions, uh, there is no clear definition of uh, what hate in fact constitutes, uh, which base makes it very difficult um, to deal with in jurisprudence, I think. Okay. Uh, my name's Emmanuel. I actually go at George Washington University just a few blocks away. And one thing I personally noticed was that after the victory of Trump, I mean, I mean, immediately afterward, of course, the liberals on campus were much more hateful. Mm. What I've noticed so far is that this year, they, they are much, much, much more humble, for lack of a better word, since being defeated in 2016. So my question is, uh, has the defeat of liberals in 2016 in America made them more humble a nationwide, and how long is this going to last, if it is? <laughs> well, there is a what's it called, Trump derangement syndrome, <laughs> which several of my family members have, I must say. Um, I haven't noticed that it made the campus calmer, but I'm, uh, I mean, that would be a good thing. I'm not a, a supporter of Mr. Trump, but uh, I also don't think, you know, for I, I, one of the many things that bothered me about his election was that I thought it was going to lend, you know, credibility to the, the darkest fantasies of the, you know, the radical scholars, because he, what better example, you know, of a, of a white male sexist patriarchal hegemon, you know, and there he was, he was elected. And um, 
so that I thought has put people, it made people somewhat frantic and uh, even more. Uh, but maybe you're right. Maybe I don't think it was humbling for that. I, I don't think that's how they see it. I think there's a, a lot of overreaction, and we'll see. I, I think it's an open question what effect it's going to have. might be worried that uh, uh, admissions will nosedive, like happened at uh, Missouri, and therefore the administration is much more um, open, or, or rather, much more open to, to open debate. You know, I've been involved in these battles for a long time. I was in the first culture war uh, in the 90s where we had better arguments, and we had the New York Times on our side and New York Magazine, and now this time we're doing, they're not on our side, they're, they're coming down off and on the side of like crazy politics in the universities. Uh, but over the years, you know, first I thought, oh, okay, all we have to do is get it out there and get the art, and that didn't work, getting, you know, just publicizing it didn't work, and then we thought, oh, we'll go after the parents, and they won't want to send their students, their children to, well, they do, they still want to, you still want to go to the good schools because it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, you send your if you get your child into a Harvard or a Yale or you know a, a, a Swarthmore, it's uh, it's status because these schools are, you know they're very competitive and so you you just want your your child to, you know meet those other students and have that that connection that name so people still want that they can do almost anything and it because it has not yet hurt the brand of the of the elite schools and then I thought maybe go up you know try to do something board of trustees, but board of trustees typically don't have that much power, and if they do, that's a problem too. So um, I actually think this is a battle that ha liberals have to fight in the university. They have to decide they've had enough. So I watched very carefully at, at Middlebury College when you had this horrible spectacle of, you know, of violence against one of their own professors when, when Charles Murray went to speak there. And, um, and, you know, waiting to see if there's going to be, and I, you know, I'm beginning, beginning to think there's, people are finding their voice. I think more books are going to come. There could be, um, uh, you know, an uprising. But we've got to depend on liberal professors. I'm not sure if they're known for their courage. We'll see. Yes, you, you ma'am. I'd actually like to follow up on that. Um, First of all, as a graduate of Middlebury College, um, and if anyone hasn't watched the video of that incident occurring, I encourage you to watch it. Not that we don't all agree here, but it's, it, I wept, um, as, as did uh, some of my liberal classmates, actually. Is there an effort among individuals like yourselves to reach out to liberal uh, professors, college administrators? I mean, I think I see potential, for example, in the president of Middlebury for her Right to be sympathetic is—is is there an effort to reach out, to have conversations, to encourage, to form a new coalition? Ah, that's what I'm looking. At. I want a coalition of. So I see sort of a new, of of just people that believe in free expression and due process and rational, you know, not scholarship and uh, and it could be libertarians, liberals, conservatives. But if, as long as we're we organized around those values, that could be powerful. But it's, it's, it, it, I think it's happening. It has to. It's too crazy. <laughs> All right. Yes. We'll, we'll get to you in a second. Um, 
thank you. My name is Dia. Thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. Um, question to Mr. Rose. Um, while you demonstrated very well how the origins of modern-day hate speech lies in the Soviet Union's bad faith uh, attempt to uh, have it as part of international law, um, and then fighting political dissidents under the disguise of fighting hate speech. Mm -hmm. The modern-day Europe, you acknowledge, <coughs> introduces those laws for different reasons. Yes. Right? And there is actual hate speech and voices that are not playing a very constructive role. Now, on the one hand, we're all value liberty, but on the other hand, how would you suggest in practical terms today, um, should, how should Europe deal with, I don't know, say, extremists who are calling for, say, ISIS supporters, who are calling on their countrymen in Europe, <clears throat> should, they, should they benefit from the liberty that the, you know, the liberal societies provide to call on for hate? Um, yeah, I think I, th I think there is a pretty good track record uh, indicating that uh, hate speech laws do not help to solve the problems that they are intended to. It's pretty clear, and uh, very few people know that in fact uh, Weimar Germany had hate speech laws protecting Jews against anti-Semitic uh, attacks. Um, and uh, Julius Streicher, the editor of Der Stürmer, the uh, Nazi magazine, and even Josef Goebbels were taken to court many times and uh, lost. Uh, uh, many people believe that there was so much freedom of speech for Nazis in, uh, in Weimar Germany that, uh, that the key to fighting these sentiments is through uh, hate speech laws. I don't think so. Uh, and, and, I, and I think the, the evidence is pretty clear. Um, I think that, um, I mean, when, when people come to Europe from the outside, uh, of course they, 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 they should in, enjoy the same rights and obligations as everybody else uh, living in society. Uh, um, I mean, terrorism has very little to do with, uh, with words, I think. Um, I mean, that's actions, it's not just words. And, uh, and the majority of European countries have introduced laws criminalizing incitement to terror. I'm, I'm against those laws because I, I think it's very difficult to, uh, to define. And, and uh, there are some, I mean, if you take uh, after 9-11, uh, a, uh, a cartoonist in France he did a cartoon of the uh, of the twin towers and an aeroplane, and uh, then the text said, "You know, everybody dreamt about doing it, uh, and Hamas did it, or Hamas did it, or something like that." A very offensive cartoon, of course, and outrageous. It was wrong, by the way, because it was not Hamas; it was uh, Al Qaeda. And this this cartoonist was convicted, uh, and the conviction was in fact confirmed by the European Court of Human Rights. Um, uh, as you know, condoning uh, uh, terrorism or inciting uh, terror, I, I think that's a wrong way to go. Uh, 
I think it's about creating a culture where you are able to manage differences and disagreements uh, in a way so that you do not uh, use violence, intimidation, threats or uh, bans. And that's really hard work. And there is so much in the culture right now that goes in the other direction. Uh, so so, so uh, European countries, they are both clamping down on radical Islamists on the one hand and on uh, radical xenophobes uh, uh, on the other because politicians on the, on, on the one hand, they welcome this diversity of culture, ethnicity and religion, but they are not willing to welcome a similar diversity of opinions and uh, speech, which I find very illogical and paradoxical. I think if you, if you accept diversity of culture, ethnicity and religion, you will also have to accept uh, diversity of opinion because, I mean, these things go hand in hand. My name is Steve, and your wonderful talk. I've just, in terms of uh, the origin, I always regretted that Jeremiah wrote, see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, because it seems to have sorrow and suffering as a, establish it as a competitive sport, and people lose sight of the human condition while focusing on their own suffering. Um, and as far as the East goes, I'm reminded of the old Polish saying that under capitalism, man exploits man. But under communism, the situation is reversed. <laughs> Good comment. And my question to you was, how would I end up talking or debating with someone who thinks in that manner of intersectionality where their arguments are based on identity instead of ideas? It's, it's difficult. And even I have trouble de debating them. I just spoke at Williams College, and in the back of the room, there were... I don't know, a mob of protesters. And they just kept, they did let me speak, but so it wasn't shut down. But then in the question answer period, from one to the next, they just, there were diatribes and meltdowns. And I talked about feminists, but I was mostly called a white supremacist. <laughs> that was the intersectionality of it all. But uh, it, I, I, I don't know how you break through because. I don't want to overstate it, but I, for the students who are, you know, deeply invested in this, it's almost as if you're speaking to someone in a cult, and they need deprogramming. Now, I presume that that's a small percentage of the hardliners, um, but just for sort of average kids, you know, students that you meet who maybe kind of have been exposed to this and think it makes sense, I think they that you can they should be you should be able to talk to them. So I think you only have to worry right now, unless I'm wrong, I think it's just a small percentage of, as I said, <clears throat> because it's intersectional, you get all the radicals together and they can make a fuss. They can intimidate the administration and, you know, all sorts of things, the administration, go along with them. But I think the average student can still be reached and talked to. Okay. This can I here. just, just yes, uh, of course, yeah. um, You'll be the last one in a second. Okay, I, um, I had a experience similar to uh, Christina's at the Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster earlier this year, where there also were protests and uh, check your white privilege and the door, which I didn't understand at that point was, was about. Uh, I'm from Denmark, so, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I learned a lesson. Um, but 
and and I try to say to them, you know, uh, I think that we should focus more on we, what we have in common. Why are we focusing so mu- so much on what divides us? These identities. I mean, if you look at human beings, in fact, we have far more in common than divides us. And and for the first time ever, you know, I make this point uh, around the world. Uh, the audience started to laugh as if I was just crazy and and covering something up. It was a really sarcastic, uh, evil laughter. And I have never experienced that before. But I, I've, 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 so it means it's very difficult. But I've, I think when it comes to free speech, I think one of the big misunderstandings, and, and I think there are reasons why some of these young kids think that way, they believe that free speech is about the right of uh, bigots to uh, you know to say bad things about them. And this is a very common understanding. But if you look at the history of free speech, uh, uh, it's really about minorities who are in need of the right to speak out in order to protect and fight for their rights. And this turns you know the equation on its head. So I think there is a lot of explaining. And uh, and teaching about the history of uh, free speech, uh, all kinds of social movements who have been oppressed, women movements, uh, workers movements, uh, all kinds of of uh, movements for change has been silenced by the powers that be, and therefore uh, uh, freedom of expression is so important to minorities. Uh, but that's not the common view on on uh, on, on campuses uh, these days. But it's a fact of history. I'm very, very sorry. Uh, we have run out of time about two minutes ago, and I have to finish on time. The good news is that our speakers are going to be here for a few more minutes, and we are going to have a reception uh, outside in the Winter Garden, so you will have an opportunity uh, to talk to us. Thank you very much for coming, and uh, see you next time.